you're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners out there on the internet, uh, and in your cars, and on your phones, and... In Radioland. In Radioland. This is the Common Descent Podcast. Today is episode 10. Bum, ba, dum, bum, bum, bum. We have achieved double digits. It's pretty exciting. I think last episode we promised that there would be cake, and as far as the listeners know, we have cake. So It, it was delicious. It was. I have it right here with me. Mm, mm. Just so it, much. <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> Before we get started on today's episode, a quick announcement, a very exciting announcement that we are making. We have something new. The Common Descent Podcast officially has a Patreon page, Woo-hoo! which is super exciting. Uh, for anybody out there who does not know what Patreon is, it is basically social media where you can make donations. So you can choose to subscribe to our Patreon page by making donations on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. The donations are whatever you want them to be. There is absolutely no requirement. There's no expectation. If you like what we do and if you like our podcast and you want to support us a little bit extra, join us and become a patron. Uh, There's all sorts of cool rewards on there. Mm -hmm. And we've tallied up some of the numbers and you can see them on the page. That as we continue to, you know, if we manage to make some funds off of Patreon, it will gradually allow us to do things like get new equipment Mm -hmm. and even, you know, buy us the time to do more stuff, more episodes, more regular products, things like that. Give us the funds to come and see people. You go on to conferences or conventions and so forth. Yeah, travel around. Mm -hmm. There's a lot you can do with money. It's pretty it's it's pretty universally useful. <laughs> As it turns out, money is pretty cool. Um we we should point out the the podcast, we don't have any intentions of ever making this podcast putting it behind a paywall. No, absolutely not. This will always be free. Uh we are not we're never going to charge people to to listen to us talk about science because, you know, we're doing this for education, we're doing it for fun, but Having a little bit extra would certainly help us along the way, so if that's your choice, you can do it. And we will put extra bonus things, you know, behind-the-scenes mm. stuff, uh, you know, a, you know, extra little recordings, bloopers, you know, all, you know, things like that we'll, we'll put together and we'll have those on Patreon for people who, who take the time to subscribe. Absolutely. You, you pay us what you think we're worth, and that's basically <laughs> all there is to it. <laughs> Add a little bit to that. <laughs> <laughs> Pay us that plus one dollar. Pay us what you think we think we're <laughs> worth, and like divide it by half. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we'll we'll put a link there, or you can search. You know, just look us up online, and we'll see how that goes. Yeah. It, it, it's also going to be a really interesting way for us to get closer in touch with our listeners. Yes, and give you a chance to really talk. Yeah, it, we'll get interaction, and if you become a patron and you are now donating to the podcast, you better believe we're gonna. You're going to have a voice. Yes. Uh, so we definitely, we love listening to people on social media. Uh, this is a, one other step on the path to us becoming connected to our listeners. So we're very excited for the launch of that. And like you said, th- this is really, in big part, our long-term dream is that we can do this full-time. And this yes. and other educational endeavors uh, like this one 
So that this is kind of the first step toward that. We want to be able to do this as much as possible. Uh, yeah. So that's what we're hoping for in the long, long run. Oh yeah. I mean, if and someday if we get there, we would have no problem with this being our job. Oh yeah. Oh uh, yeah. But that is a long way off. For now, it's maybe you know, not as long. Thanks to listeners like you. Thanks to <laughs> listeners like you. <laughs> da na na da. <laughs> Today's episode, we are talking about the a subject that keeps coming up and we never really slow down enough to talk about it. This episode is about the tree of life. Yeah, it's kind of underlying of any time you talk about animals. Yes. Uh, it, well, yeah, it's a, it's a subject that you and I keep talking about, this idea of the relationships between organisms and how we classify organisms and how we categorize them. Mm-hmm. And we keep using words here and there that I, you know, sometimes I, I wonder if we're talking in a in a in a framework that not everybody is on the same page and so mm-hmm. this will be a good episode for us to kind of discuss how do we think about evolutionary relationships and and biological classification it's really just going to be an hour long vocabulary lesson everybody strap in <laughs> just get your notebooks it's going to be awesome uh we will be answering questions such as how do we classify organisms how do we understand relationships and the answers to intriguing philosophical questions such as, are humans fish? Mm-hmm. More on that later. <laughs> and now, the weather. I mean, the news. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to start us off, Will? Absolutely. All right, so I'll jump in with my first one, uh, which is a fairly recent news article, but we also uh, had someone mention to us that they wanted to hear more about this animal, so this felt kind of like a Nice intermediate before until we get to the an actual episode about giant ground sloths. Giant ground sloths. So this was a study recently that showed that giant ground sloths are indeed vegetarians, which may not Ooh. sound super crazy to people listening right now. But to give a bit of background, giant ground sloths are the big ancestors and cousins of uh, the modern sloths, which as we all know, are the really cute, upside-down, slow-moving, <laughs> snub-nosed, you know, internet fans of today. Or internet yeah. celebrities. They ran the DMV in Zootopia, yeah. hilariously. Yes. So these were relatives of those. Giant ground slots could get up to the size of literally elephants. Uh, some of yeah. the largest <laughs> ones were massive. They were all, or for the most part, too big to spend any real time in trees you know mm-hmm. maybe when they were younger who knows but they all seem to be terrestrial but they still have those massive claws uh, huge yeah. like when when lewis and clark first set out they had already found some fossils of ground sloths and thomas jefferson believed them to be the giant claws of lions and <laughs> warned them to be aware of these massive beasts that may still be lurking out in the midwest that's why one of the ground sloths is jefferson i uh, yeah, Megalonyx, Jeffer, Jeffer, I think Jeffersonii? Jeffersonii. Jeffersonii, yes. Yeah. And so they, they have these huge talents, and it's been kind of unclear exactly how these animals functioned. Uh, lots of people you know, posited that the claws were for pulling branches toward them and for defense. Mm-hmm. Others thought that it might be actually used to fight animals away from carcasses, and that these may have mm-hmm. been highly scavengers. The diets of these animals has kind of been disputed. Yeah. So this study set out to answer that question by looking at isotopes in the collagen of the bones of giant ground sloths. And so I, the isotope studies that they did tend to show differently in herbivores and carnivores with there being a much higher proportion of isotopes in carnivores. It's it's a ratio mm-hmm. 
factor, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's the ratio between different forms of, in this case, carbon. Yes. They were saying that since herbivores primarily eat foods that are high in carbohydrates, it changes that ratio. Yep. So when they looked at the sloth bones, they found that it was they were definitely herbivores, that these were vegetarians. So it puts that to rest. The cool thing is how they confirmed their study. They looked at over 200 bones of modern mammals, which they yeah. know the diets of, and then also other fossil animals, which were much less disputed about their diets to help confirm these results. Yeah, you basically make a chart mm -hmm. where, you know, elephants and giraffes and whatever are over here, and lions and tigers are over here, and then you see where your fossil animal falls. Yeah, and so that's this is a very common in paleo statistics of you build a database with information you know, or you have already established very well, and then you study yours, and you basically just see where it falls on this new map. Yeah. And according to that result, gives you answers. Sometimes it does not give you the clear answer you were expecting. When you have, yeah. we have this half and this half, and then it falls in the middle. Well, it, that's an answer that just now raises a lot more questions. Uh, this one, though, was pretty pretty uh, clear that it was not scavenging carcasses, at least not as any main way of it, uh, main source of its diet. Interesting. I, I, it's interesting that you brought up the question of what those claws were used for, mm -hmm. because I don't remember if we talked about this or not, but there was a stu there's been there's a long series of studies that have been done on giant burrows mm -hmm. in South America. I don't think these are known from North America, but in South America there are burrows that are you know two, three, four meters across, mm -hmm. which is to say Will and I could both lay down end to end from side to side in it yep. with these big scratch marks on them and they're clearly burrows and the only animals with big claws that are, have digging capable forelimbs that would be big enough to create these are giant ground sloths. Yep. They're, it's, it's weird because when you see a picture of them, they seem like a straightforward animal. This is a big yeah. lumbering animal that eats plants and it has big claws to keep itself safe. But the more and more we learn about them and the more we look at them, they are super weird. And there's actually yeah. a lot of mysteries as to how exactly a lot of these were surviving, which is yeah. cool, but weird. They are very strange animals. Their whole, we'll, we'll talk more about them in the future. Their, their whole group is weird. Yeah, they, they definitely will get their own episode. Yeah. Because they are super bizarre. Their faces are also just funny because they don't have front teeth like most of them. <laughs> they just have these sides teeth, this toothless lip area, and then a huge nose. Yeah. <laughs> just massive. Yeah, they're all big, pot-bellied, bear gorilla <laughs> strain. They're super weird. <laughs> Speaking of big animals. Yes. My first news piece. In fact, the biggest. So if you thought, if you thought ground slots were giant... Let's talk about whales. Have we got a news story for you? Have <laughs> we got the animals for you? Um, when I was preparing to talk about this news story, I realized I don't I I don't think we have mentioned whales much at all in the history of our podcast so far, which no. strikes me as very strange. Yeah, they're such cool, such cool animals. They really are. They're it, it's they're kind of set aside from everything else. So. Whales, there are lots and lots of whales. Uh, there's there's a big diversity of whales in the world today. The number one thing that whales are famous for is being stupid huge. Yeah, the size of uh, one, one. One particularly is even the size of a country. That That is a whales, the country joke. Uh, 
Moving on swiftly. Yes, I apologize. That that one will go into the bloopers. Uh, <laughs> none of you will be forced to listen to that. <laughs> Whales are not just big. Whales are the largest animals that we know of to have ever existed, ever. Specifically, mm-hmm. uh, the group of whales called the mysticetes, the baleen whales. Yeah. Blue whales, humpback whales, fin whales, things like that. One of the big questions, evolutionarily, that has sort of revolved around this is the question of why whales are so big, and the related question, when did they get that way? Mm-hmm. So a new study came out recently in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B by Graham Slater and colleagues that basically looked at when did these whales, when did whales get, get as the size that they are? And they pulled together a whole collection of modern whales and fossil whales and compared their features to determine, and, and the timing of them to determine when this large size showed up. And what they found was that giant body size in whales looks like it kicked off around three or four million years ago. And this coincides with the start of the climate patterns that dominated the Ice Age. So there have been a lot of suggestions in the past as to what drove giant whales to become giant, and people have suggested large predators in the ocean, like large sharks or large toothed whales. Uh, People have suggested that their mode of feeding has to do with it. But filter feeding showed up 25 million years ago or so, and large predators have been in the ocean forever. So they were looking to see what changed, and what seems to have changed is the climate. The explanation that they give for why this change happened around this time was not as straightforward as it got cold and big bodies are better for cold, although that could certainly be a factor. Mm -hmm. They explained that the changing climate regime brought the sort of intense seasonal shifts that we see in the world today, mm-hmm. where you get certain parts of the ocean, especially near the coasts, explode in diversity at certain times of the year. Nutrients collect in certain parts of the ocean, and you get these big booms of fish and plankton and algae congregate in one spot in a huge burst. Yeah. For a short period of time, and this has to do with wind patterns, and it has to do with water, uh, ocean currents, and it has to do with temperatures that they come together on a regular basis and create this essentially huge resource of food. Mm-hmm. And today, the way that a lot of big whales live is they migrate long distances across the ocean to get to the places where these big bursts of food are happening, and then they open their giant mouths and swim through them, Mm -hmm. which is called lunge feeding. They open their mouths and just swim through and collect thousands and thousands of tiny organisms and eat them. It's the longest lunge ever. Yep. And so basically, the, the, the suggestion that they're making is that as this seasonal cycling of nutrients started, it became beneficial to be large-bodied because, A, the larger you are, the more you can get in a lunge, Mm -hmm. and B, the larger you are, the more well-equipped you are for migrating long distances without food for a while. Yeah. And they described it as the way that large whales live today is that they rely on dense but patchily distributed prey resources. Yes. They're moving from these, you know, booms of food from place to place as they show up. Yes, swimming through plate, you know, ocean with not a whole lot to eat in between. Yeah, because the the open and the some a lot of things people don't realize is the earth is mostly water, but most of that water is barren. Yeah, there's not a lot in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. The the ocean floor in the 
you know, middle of the ocean, the deep spots of the ocean, but also just the open waters are very much like a desert. And they're, you know, many times it's referred to as the oceanic desert because animals have to be good at traveling long distances to find those little oases of islands and, you know, floating debris that attract them. Yeah. Whales have done this so, to the extreme. Yes. Uh, and and the, the interesting sort of takeaway here is also that giant whales are kind of a new thing. They, they they have whales have been around for 50 million years or so, but they've only sort of been hitting these big sizes in great diversity recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, although multiple groups of whales have done that. Yeah, it's it's one of those cool times because you know one of the most common questions that people often have about fossil animals is why was everything so much bigger in the past? Yeah, that's a whole episode just to answer that question. Absolutely, but it's cool to be like, well, lots of things were. But lots of things not only still are, but some have gotten bigger than they ever were, or things have yes. ever been. The the largest species of animal that we know of in the 600 million years history of animals lives today. Yes, which is really cool. Which is pretty cool. They're pretty. There's a we have a couple pieces of baleen at the aquarium that we always use to show people, and it's always just a fun thing. What do you think this is? Because it's weird looking by itself if you don't know what yeah. baleen is. Looks like very much like a palm frond. Uh, but that we have one that is easily 10 feet long. It's got to be close to 10 foot. I've never taken the time to measure it. Yeah, they're they're huge. And and it's great because I'll point out, it's like, this is baleen. It's how they filter. It's made out of the same stuff as your hair and your finger, all that good stuff. And they'll say, and just as we're heading out, this is a great time to rem- remind you, that has to be minimum how tall their mouth is. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Not much else can drive home how big they are and when you realize that you could probably stand up on their tongue with head clearance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> like it's huge. Yeah, they're pretty awesome. So speaking of big things with big mouths, my next article is about T-Rex. So Woo-hoo! a recent study done by one of my uh, favorite researchers, just because a lot of his work and this duo actually have done a lot of work on crocodilians and their uh, bite mechanics. This is a research article showing that T-Rex, we all know it has a very strong bite, but that it was using it to crush bones, very much like modern mammals, such as hyenas and wolves do. Yeah. Which is weird, because reptiles typically don't do that. True. So this was an article in uh, Scientific Reports. This was published by Gregory Erickson and Paul Gignac. They have done a number of articles looking at the bite forces and mechanics on alligators and all crocodilians. They found the the record-breaking bite forces recently for crocs. They've now done mechanics to look at it on T-Rex, and they've worked. On, like, they have some other articles where they looked at this, but they did a 3D model of the T-Rex jaw with musculature, and they got that musculature by looking at modern-day archosaurs, so mm-hmm. crocodilians and birds, to figure out how this would work. Uh, and the, they wanted to do a really detailed version of this uh, because T-Rex bite force has been looked at a number of times and it has a huge range yeah. of the results that people come up with. And so they decided, let's use their actual relatives and map out the musculature. And it's supposed to be a very detailed model that they created. They came up with a mm-hmm. bite force of about 4,000 pounds of force. And that's just yeah. the mechanical force that the jaw could create, which is actually fairly low as to what has been estimated beforehand. Yeah, there have been a lot of crazy high estimates oh, previously. Yeah. Like, you know, a 100,000 
pounds of pressure, mm-hmm. which is awesome and all. What they didn't look at, because they realized how much the jaw can produce is one thing. How much pressure the teeth are creating is quite another. Yeah. And so they looked and measured out with the giant teeth that T-Rex has on the tip of the tooth, the pressure per square inch that would be created there, which this is why whenever you use things, you know, like pickaxes, you have a fine tip because it decreases the area. Concentrates the pressure. It was 431,000 pounds per square inch (laughs) on the tip of that tooth. (laughs) It's massive. That's a lot of force. Amount of pressure. It's crazy. And they were, they had looked at other uh, bones with T-Rex tooth marks and found evidence of T-Rexes biting it multiple times. Yeah. And so what they're, what what they've uh, put forward with all of these results is that it looks like T-Rex, much like bone-gnawing hyenas and wolves that have special mm-hmm. molars that shear together like scissors to fracture the tooth. Yeah. That T-Rex is doing a very similar thing by gnawing on these bones it would be able to find the cracks with the tip of its teeth and fracture them. Yeah. And they even did a model to show how its mouth would work if it were to put a bone in sideways, that basically it would snap it in the middle, very much like when you snap a pencil. They you know use that example in one of the yeah, articles. Like if you, if, if you break something over your leg. Exactly. Like you've got teeth pushing down and teeth pushing up, and they create these cracks. They call it a three-point stress test. Yelp. And they they pointed this to being one of T Rex's success uh, modes of being why it was so successful because if as a big predator if you're able to utilize the minerals and marrow in bones that gives you a whole new source of nutrients that other predators aren't going to be able to take yeah especially other reptilian predators yes and that could explain why T Rex's head was so massive compared to other big predatory dinosaurs. Everything about T-Rex, the skull of T-Rex, even compared to other tyrannosaurs, Mm -hmm. big, strong bones fused together for extra strength. The teeth are thick and round and robust. This, everything about this skull was, was meant for a powerful, powerful bite. The cool, one of the coolest things about this one to me is they made the point that the strength of the bite on T-Rex is not the only reason it would have been able to do this because modern day crocodilians who have the strongest bite currently measured of any animal today don't crunch bones. Yes. They, they'll swallow bones, but they do not crunch bones specifically because their teeth are not designed to, they'd be snapping their teeth all over. They can replace them, but they are not good at doing that. So the fact that T-Rex can do this is unique among most reptiles. And they had a really good, Erickson had a really good quote as to explain why Bite pressure is not the only factor. He's saying, mm-hmm. you know, bite pressure can't be the only thing you look at because the teeth are the ones actually doing the job. And the metaphor he used was, it's like assuming a 600 horsepower engine guarantees speed. In a Ferrari, sure, but not in, not for a dump truck. Interesting. Which is a, I like that. I really like that. Just because you have the power doesn't mean you can do the same jobs. You know, crocodilians are great at sl- slamming and holding. Yep. But that, that's about it. Their teeth aren't yeah. designed to do anything more than that. T-Rex had these teeth that were able to crunch bone. That's so cool. It's really cool. It's they have That's some cool they, they have some of my favorite crocodilian articles just because they yeah. go into such detail that they have one all about alligator bite forces as they grow, one about captive versus wild and then one going through each species of crocodilian and it's it's Erickson does a great job with that sort of stuff. He's on all of those. Shout out to Greg Erickson. Yeah, cuz it's it's awesome. Keep it up. So, ground slots are big. 
and whales are big, and T-Rex is big. So obviously. The final news piece is has nothing to do with big animals. No. This final news piece is about bees. Bees? For anyone who plays bees. Cards Against Humanity. <laughs> <laughs> This is a this is a little bit of a different study from what we normally do because unlike the previous three studies we just talked about, there are no fossils in this study. <gasps> this is a study that basically f- looked at why some bees have evolved soldiers. Mm-hmm. So you think about ants, right? Ants have a colony, and you have worker ants, and in a lot of colonies you have soldier ants, which are bigger, and they you know often they'll have giant jaws, and their job is to protect the colony. Bees have colonies too, but most bees do not have that sort of differentiation. Mm -hmm. There are exceptions. In the tropics, there are many species of stingless bees, and there are a handful of them that have guard bees. That, again, are bigger, beefier, sometimes even different colors compared to the regular worker bees. Well, a new study in Nature Communications by Gruder et al. basically looked at trying to figure out why did they evolve that... By same as the whales, looking at when did they evolve that. Mm -hmm. So they analyzed 28 different species of stingless bees from around Brazil, all of which have these guard bees from a whole variety of different habitats and lifestyles, and did a phylogenetic analysis, basically looking at their relationships to determine their history. More on that in the actual topic of the episode. (laughs) And came up with the estimate that large size in these bees has in the in the guard bees has evolved multiple times and each of those times around 20 25 million years ago which is interesting because stingless bees have been around for a good 80 million years so then the question again like the whales was what changed 20 25 million years ago that coincided with the evolution of these giant sized soldier guard bees mm-hmm. and the answer seems to be that is around the time that robber bees first evolved. Oh, cool. And robber bees are a parasitic species of bees that go into the colonies of other bees and steal their stuff and oftentimes destroy the colony. And they even found that to cement, to strengthen this correlation, when they examined the different species of stingless bees they were looking at, the ones that were the most likely to have evolved giant guard bees were the ones that were most targeted by robber bees. Oh, that's cool. So, without any fossil record, they were able to analyze the evolutionary history of these groups and find that these parasitic bees evolved, and the response was, uniquely within bees, a bunch of bee species evolved soldiers whose specific purpose seems to be to keep these parasites out. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a nifty little study. It's cool. It's cool to me. Like eusocial insects are my favorite group, just in general, because they're awesome. But it's especially crazy that there are so many of them that can go without stingers, which is kind of yeah. their thing. Like that's that's what you think of when you think of ants and and bees is that they sting you and it sucks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so there's a, but there's a whole bunch. Who don't have that and still have found ways to go around it, which is really cool. Yeah. And it's super cool that bees have come to the same solution of yes. what if some of us just get big and strong? Interestingly, I learned from this paper that there are no wasps who have soldiers, which I guess kind of makes sense when you think about it. Because you only need to be so evil. 
Because <laughs> <laughs> why would you need soldiers when you're already all terrifying and, <laughs> and, and powerful? That's the news. Indeed. Which brings us to today's topic episode. As always, the um, the news articles, we will link them in our blog post. Mm -hmm. And I also have gotten in the habit of posting them on Facebook and Twitter as well. So yes. you can look for them there. Moving along, as I mentioned, today's episode is about the Tree of Life. More specifically, we're looking at how do we categorize and understand the relationships between living creatures. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about this all the time. You know, we, we are constantly talking about, oh, this is the, the relative of this, and this fits in this group, and, you know, and, and, and we don't, like I said at the beginning, we've never really slowed down to explain what all of that means and where we get yeah. our terminology and where we're coming from. So today's episode is about taxonomy and phylogeny. But I called it the Tree of Life because no one would click on an episode called Taxonomy and Phylogeny. No. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I would, but I, I don't expect everybody to click on that. Starting with taxonomy. Taxonomy is how we classify living things. Mm -hmm. So humans love to categorize things. In fact, we need to because otherwise language doesn't work. Yeah. You know, we, we have to have categories. But this is hurt by the fact that nature doesn't really have categories for the most part. Yeah, the, my, my favorite way to explain that is... The one thing that you always have to remember whenever studying animals is that the animals don't read the books we write about them. <laughs> yes. They don't know they're mammals. Yes. They don't You care. made that word up. <laughs> <laughs> but this has a long history of us trying to categorize creatures, you know, and, and we've done it. Typically, you do it based on uh, uh, similarities. Mm -hmm. You know, the beasts of the air, the beasts of the sea, the beasts of the land. The most famous categorization is that of Linnaeus. Yeah. And this is the one that we learn in schools, Kingdom, Phylum, Class, Order, Family, Genus, Species. Mm -hmm. His is an interesting categorization because unlike mo you know, many others, his is all about groups inside of groups. Yes. So it's not just mammals over here, reptiles over here, birds over here, insects over here. The Linnaean classification system specifically has, you know, humans are a species... And they fit into the primates group alongside gorillas and monkeys and lemurs and everything. Yes. And primates are a part of the bigger mammals group alongside with cats and dogs and bears. And mammals are part of the bigger vertebrates group alongside reptiles and birds. And every group is part of a bigger group. Mm -hmm. Which works out yeah. pretty well in nature. And that's the system that we've been using for a long time. And we still do today. Yeah, it works with uh, I mean, even the title of our podcast, The Common Descent. Everything comes from the same group above it. Yes. And this system was in place long before anything was known about relationships between organisms, mm -hmm. really. One of the weird things that comes up when you're categorizing is that if you're putting categories on things, you're it's arbitrary. Yes. Because you're basically choosing the features to use, and you're choosing the names of your categories, and like I said, nature doesn't really categorize, and you know, if you if you had a classroom full of kids, and you gave them all boxes of Legos, and said, build a cool robot, and then you tried to decide how to categorize your robots, mm -hmm. you're going to come up with a million different options that are all equally good. Well, and you also have differing opinions on how best to ca categorize. My favorite yep. example of that is the the ever-ending argument of does one organize your books slash movies alphabetically or by subject? 
Yeah, and there's going to be multiple correct answers because there's going to be a lot of equal choices. Yeah. Well, you know, what makes more sense to each individual. Yes. Um, but the hierarchy system of groups within groups works out really well. Mm -hmm. In fact, it kind of works surprisingly well that all groups really do seem to fit into these bigger groups. And when you start comparing all of their features, the more you compare, the more you start getting these groups, mammals and reptiles and insects. And there, there is a lot of similarities between these, these different categories. And the person who sort of ushered in this age of understanding why there's so much similarity in these categories was Charles Darwin. So Darwin, uh, very famously, uh, you know, Dar Darwin is, is famous for ushering in our understanding of evolution and this notion that, you know, showing how, how organisms change over time, how species change over time. But that's only part of the big revelation that he made. The other big revelation that he made was that living things share a family tree and that the reason that different species seem to fit within similar groups is because they're actually related in those groups. So the reason that wolves fit in the same group as all the dogs is because they actually are related. They share a genealogy. Mm -hmm. So the comparison here that I always like to use is it's very much like a family tree. Yes. So if you look at, uh, you know, if you look at your family, your siblings, right? My brother and my sister and myself are very similar because we're related because we all came from the same parents. Mm -hmm. My cousins are similar to us, not as similar, but still similar because we came from the same grandparents. Yeah. And if you keep going back, you will eventually find that connection with everybody else. Will and I probably have shared ancestry mm -hmm. somewhere in, you know, Europe some time ago. Yeah. You know, we're 13th cousins or something like that. And it's it's uh, the same reason you have people nowadays when you go, oh, so what are you? And they're like, oh, well, I'm I'm German and Scottish and Irish. Yeah. Your ancestry, you know, it, it's, it's the whole thing. of You can have two, three people that all look the same but have slightly different ancestries. But it's the same idea of that's where you originally, some of your DNA came from. Yes. And so we look at, you know, Darwin was the first person to draw a family tree of life mm -hmm. in the way that we understand it today. That if you keep going back far enough with human ancestry, you eventually get to the first population of humans mm -hmm. that everyone is descended from. And they have ancestors that if you keep going far enough back, you reach an ancestral species that also gave rise to the chimpanzee lineage. Yes. And if you keep going back, you'll find an ancestor that you share with gorillas. And if you keep going back, and it's all a big family tree. Yeah. And we even use language like that. You know, uh, today, chimps and bonobos are the closest species, living species to each other mm -hmm. in terms of their ancestry. So we call them sister species. Yes. Because they came from the same parent ancestor. And, and that would make us their cousins in that analogy, that we are one step out. And that's why you also hear the language is always that animals are related to each other or how closely were they related to you know, horseshoe crabs are more closely related to spiders. Doesn't make them spiders. But they're closer to that yes. than crab. The relation also comes in that family tree linguistics. Yeah. So this fits nicely within the, the that Linnaeus sort of nesting groups because, you know, the dog group and the mammal group, they're families. Hmm. They started as an ancestor and that ancestor branched and had descendants in all different directions, but they actually are related. 
One thing that I think is really important, and this comes up a lot in questions and conversations, is when you have a groups are related to each other, but the species inside the group are not closer or farther from someone in another group. Mm -hmm. So my brother and sister and I are all close to each other. None of us is closer to my cousin. Yes. Right. We are all descended from my parents and my cousin is descended from his parents. And then we have a grand, you know, we are part of a, a group. My cousin is part of a group. None of us is closer to my cousin than anybody else. Yeah. So this is this question comes up when people ask. I've seen a lot of people will say which birds are closest to Tyrannosaurus. Yeah. Well, none of them, because all birds descended from an ancestor that was a relative of T-Rex. Yes. So all birds are equally related to Tyrannosaurus. Mm -hmm. They're descended from Tyrannosaurus's cousin. Yes. This structure, right, this understanding of the relatedness of life, this family tree, this this notion that there is genealogy, mm -hmm. that all living things are related somehow on the branches of this tree, leads to problems with the Linnaeus system. Yeah, a little bit. Just a little bit. One of the best examples of the problems with the kingdom phylum class order family genus species thing is that Linnaeus classified reptiles as a class mm -hmm. and also birds as a class. But we understand now that evolutionarily birds came from reptiles. Yes. So if we keep Linnaeus's structure, you have a class inside of a class, which doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. It's not supposed to happen that way. Exactly. You're not supposed to have, you know, it's supposed to go class, then order, then family, and yeah. so on. You don't have a, you don't have a president and then a president under the president. It's yes, exactly. <laughs> you can't, you have to keep your groups on the same level. But because, you know, Linnaeus didn't have that evolutionary perspective, we didn't have the fossil record to tell us about stuff, to yeah. help us learn about stuff like that. The other issue that comes up is that those groupings are supposed to be equal, but they're not. So mammals are a class with five or 6,000 living species, and birds are a class with 10 or 11,000 living species, but insects are also a class, mm -hmm. and they have more than a million living species. So using the same category words gives off the impression that this that there's something that they're equal, right? That there's an equal number or an equal diversity, and there's not really. Mm -mm. Uh, insects have also been around for twice as long as those other two groups. Yes. So coming up with those names for the groups gives this sort of false sense that they are equal to each other. And once again, now with that family tree perspective, we understand that they're not really. And then the biggest problem, and this is the one that probably comes up the most in quest conversations with people who are confused, is that there's more than seven categories. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for example, we talk a lot about reptiles, right? And, and, and we have that reptilia is traditionally a class, mm -hmm. and then crocodilia is traditionally an order, mm -hmm. but crocs and dinosaurs and birds and pterosaurs all fit in the group archosaurs. Yep. So that makes archosaurs a group that is bigger than an order, but smaller than a class, <laughs> and Linnaeus doesn't have a word for that. Yep. And the reality is, anytime you have a new branch and a new family originates, you have a new category. Yeah. You have a new break in between these categories. So today we come up with all sorts of crazy in-between words. Yep. And we, we call it, we go with super order and suborder and super family and infra class and subgenus. Yep. And it, it gets it they will not always agree with one another. Yes. 
when you look from one source to another, where in one, this grouping would be, they call it a class, because that's what it traditionally was. But it, mm -hmm. in this one, they've shifted it to a subclass, because either in their research that makes more sense you know, with what they found, or they are agreeing with someone else who said it should really be a subclass. And yes. all, all you need to do is browse Wikipedia for a little bit and <laughs> click through when you look at an animal and it gives you their you know, Linnaeus classifications, and you'll click onto yep. the subclass tab, and it will bring you to the class of that. It's it's a bit of a mess. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's because, again, we're trying to fit categories where there aren't really categories, yeah. where they're based on categories, right? Mammals are a real group yeah. because they're descended from the same ancestors. There's an actual lineage there. Yep. So... The, the the sort of identification of a group in that sense is that they have shared features, right? All mammals have fur, and all mammals produce milk, and all mammals have three inner ear bones. Yeah. Because 200 million years ago or so, those features gradually evolved until you had a species with all of them, and that species, which we might call the first mammals had lots of descendants, and mm -hmm. all of those descendants inherited those features. Yes. And that is why we have mammals. And then one branch of that descendancy had, you know, opposable thumbs and binocular vision and all those wonderful things Ethan told us about yeah. back in Episode 7, and that became the start of primates, and then they had a bunch of descendants, which are all part of primates. Yeah, so the features we're looking at in animals to classify them are all real differences and real suites of features, like real, you know, selections of characteristics. Once we start trying to put names to them specifically is where it doesn't fit as well because the names are things we made up yes. and nothing in nature fits into nice, neat categories, which is why we have yes. to have those things of, well, there's always exceptions because we had to fit something into a category it didn't 100% fit in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Exactly. And, and it leads to this confusion over things like, are birds reptiles? Yes. And I've seen a lot of people get upset um, and passionate about arguing when people call dinosaurs reptiles. Yes. I've met a lot of people who go, well, no, dinosaurs aren't reptiles because they were high metabolism. They had warm, you know, they were warm blooded. They this and this. And it's this this conflict between trying to define these categories based on their features and trying to understand them in an evolutionary context, mm -hmm. which brings us to cladistics. Yep. Cladistics is how we try to understand evolutionary relationships. So this word phylogeny, um, which I hope I mentioned before, phylogeny is the evolutionary tree of life. Yeah. And there is a tree. There is a relationship tree of life, but we don't know where all the branches go, and we don't know all the relationships yet, uh, as with anything in science. Mm-hmm. Cladistics is a method of trying to figure it out. Yeah. Cladistics is also where we get a lot of the words we use these days. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the words you hear uh, Will and myself use over the course of the podcast. Cladistics kind of tries to solve that category issue by defining categories without those names. Yes. So all groupings, all related groups are clades. A clade starts with the ancestor, right? Those first mammals, those first primates, whatever. And all of their descendants all fit into a clade. Mm -hmm. Anytime you have an ancestor that has a bunch of descendants, that's a clade. The species Homo sapiens is a clade. The kingdom, quote, quote, kingdom, animalia, all animals are a clade. 
descended from a common ancestor. Yes. Um, when people do genetic studies, they'll look at a specific gene and find the ancestry of a gene and look at clades of genes. So you have clades at all these different levels. And if you look, we, we, we construct a specific kind of family tree called a cladogram. Yeah. And what a cladogram does is it says, these are the features that partially define this group, and then all the new branches have new features yes, as different family branches devel uh, developed. Every time you have a split, there's a reason you had a split. Something was different to tell those new now two new branches apart. Yes, exactly. One of the big benefits of this, you know, keeping this sort of history in mind is that cladistics, and when we talk about clades, we are paying very close attention to the order that features evolved in. Yes. So, wonderful example, if you are trying to categorize animals based on features that they share, right, and I give you a snake and a crocodile, because of course, <laughs> and a wolf and a platypus... Well, you can't look at all the features at the same time, so if we're just looking at one feature, like reproduction, mm -hmm. three of those animals lay eggs. Yep. So if you were categorizing them based just on that shared feature, you would want to put platypuses, snakes, and crocodiles in one group and wolves in the other. And it gets extra confusing when you find those snakes that you know, give birth to already slithering young. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you're using a snake that gives live birth, you're even more confused. Yep. So this raises, you know, the question is, why do platypuses lay eggs like reptiles? And they're very similar to reptile eggs. Mm -hmm. Is it because they are more related to reptiles? Or is it because of their ancestry? Mm -hmm. And we understand evolutionarily that the ancestry, right, mammals and reptiles form a group called amniotes. Yep. The first amniotes, the ancestors, laid eggs. And the snake lineage inherited that, mostly. And the crocodile lineage inherited that. And the platypuses inherited that. But then one big branch of mammals changed. The wolf, in this case, is the weird one mm -hmm. because its ancestors made a shift. Yep. So it's very important when we're looking and trying to figure out these relationships to understand the history of certain features. And these are words that Will and I use a lot. Ancestral features mm -hmm. or basal features are features that were present in the beginning. The first mammals had fur and had milk and had three inner ear bones. So the fact that humans have those things, those are ancestral features. We inherited them directly from our mammal ancestor. Uh, the earliest mammals laid eggs. Yep. Platypuses have an ancestral feature that most of the rest of us mammals lost. Which is why things like the placenta and live birth are not key factors for identifying mammals. Yes, so when people say, well, well, mammals are identified by giving live birth. No, they're not. Mm -hmm. Most of us do, but that's something that changed along the way. Not even all of us do it the same way. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> features that are different from the ancestors are called derived features. Something new. Uh, and this is another term that I know we've used before and never really stopped to talk about it. A derived feature is something new. Uh, snakes that evolved to give live birth. That's derived compared to their reptile ancestors. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll also hear people use the word primitive for early traits. Uh, and that's something that a lot of scientists don't like using anymore, because primitive makes it sound like it's not as good. Yeah, it denotes a, quali a quality instead of a yeah. just description. Yes. So you have ancestral features or basal features, or if you want to get really crazy, plesiomorphic features. <laughs> 
that have been around since the beginning of your clade, and then you have derived features, or advanced features, or, once again, apomorphic features, <laughs> that your group evolved specifically. And we talk about these a lot. One of the reasons that I like snakes so much, and I like whales, and I like bats, and most of my favorite groups of animals, I like them because of how derived they are compared to their ancestry and the rest of their major groups. They evolved a lot of weird stuff. A.K.A. weird. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and the nice thing about using the evolutionary context and the clade system is that you're still forming a tree, a branching tree that would look, if you were to put up a you know, Linnaeus tree next to it, they'd look very similar, and they'd probably even have the same branches in most places. But instead mm -hmm. of trying to categorize them into a level system, you are now just all groups are equal in their terminology, which allows mm -hmm. them all to be different. You know, this clade and this clade can be completely different sizes because we're using the name for all of them. They're all clades. Yes. Doesn't denote importance, doesn't denote how many groups it's supposed to have below it, because that's the other issue is, you know, when you start getting into those weird subclasses and subfamilies and subspecies, is you can yeah. have an order that has not just way more species, but way more levels within it, which yes. it makes it means it really should be higher up on the list if you're so this gets rid of all of that confusion and part of the the real benefit to that is there's probably lots of people going, so why don't you just change the names in the Linnaeus system? Because mm -hmm. changing, changing names and getting everyone to agree on the change is really hard to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this has been a system that's been used for a long time, and people either hold on to it or it's already well known. Yeah. And we're always going to find new things. Yes. So taxonomy is, is classification is, ch is always changing. Basically, every time a new species is found. Yeah, some, a little bit changes. The clade system, right, to referring to things in terms of clades, the definition rarely changes. Mm -hmm. You've chosen, this is when an ancestor showed up. Everything that descended from that point is now part of this clade. Yeah, and the nice thing is you could bump that down every time. If yep. you went to the next species, that now has its own clade with all of its ancestors, you know, its descendants. You go yeah. down to the next one in that, and it's every time it will bump down. Yeah. So we still use class and family and order and phylum these days, but there's less of this expectation that they're always going to fit, mm -hmm. or that they're not going to change, because they are. Uh, one thing that I want to point out about that order of features, right, advanced versus ancestral features, basal versus derived, is that those are words of comparison. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at dinosaurs, for example, or reptiles, right, if you're looking at reptiles, ancestrally, reptiles don't fly. Yep. Birds are a particular group of reptiles that evolved flight. That is a derived feature. Yes. But if you're just looking at birds... The earliest birds flew. Mm -hmm. So among birds, flight is an ancestral feature, and an ostrich who does not fly, that's a derived feature. They have evolved a, something different from that ancestor. So what you call advanced, derived versus ancestral depends on where you're looking. Yeah, what part of the tree you're looking at. And the real, the real way to, to drive that home and remember is that every basal feature as, was at one point derived. Yes. One at one point it was new. Yeah, every single feature they're like, yeah, well, all mammals, you know, use milk to feed their. Okay, but at one point that was weird. Yes, among vertebrates, that was the new weird thing. It was a new weird thing, and so it's all just a progression. Yes, 
Which leads nicely into the next point, mm -hmm. which is categories get confusing because new things are always evolving. Yes. One of my favorite examples. So we, we give names to these things, right? We're constantly giving names to all these different groups, all the different clades. It's like a compulsion. Yes. But a clade has to include the earliest ancestor and all of its descendants. Mm -hmm. You can't take a family photo without grandma and claim that it's the whole family. Yes. It's not. You're missing an ancestor. At the same time, if I'm not there, it's not a complete family photo because I'm one of the descendants. Mm -hmm. Your clade has to include once you evolve within a clade, you never leave that clade. So, for example, the first vertebrate animals to walk on land, right, they evolved from fish, the first amphibious creatures were, were the first tetrapods. Mm -hmm. We call them tetrapods, which means four feet, and those tetrapods gave rise to all amphibians, birds, reptiles, and mammals. Yes. Because they're de descendants of tetrapods, they are all considered part of tetrapoda, even snakes who don't have feet. Yes. Because they, their ancestors had feet. Their ancestors had four feet, and that's why the group is called tetrapods. Snakes are very derived in the sense that they have lost their limbs, but they're still considered part of tetrapods. Mm -hmm. they're, they're place in the tree, their place in the classification is based on their ancestry, not necessarily just their features. Yeah. Which leads to the question that I teased at the very beginning of the episode, and a question that kind of came up in a conversation we had on Facebook yeah. recently, are humans fish? Mm-hmm. And the answer is yes and also no. <laughs> Once again, it depends on how you look at it. Yes. So that first, those first tetrapods were descendants of bony fish. And bony fish, right, goldfish, lungfish... Anglerfish. Other fish. Other fish. Most fish fit in this group that is traditionally the class called Osteichthyes, mm -hmm. which means bony fish. Bony fish means they have a bony skeleton, not a cartilage one, like sharks. Yes. So bony fish are most fish that aren't sharks. Because bony fish gave rise to tetrapods, and because tetrapods includes us, right? We are part of mammals, mm -hmm. so we are part of tetrapods. Technically, we are descended from fish. Yes. A long ways back. Cladistically, this means that we fit in the clade Osteichthys. Mm -hmm. And if you look at modern-day classification schemes for any vertebrate animal, it will start at Osteichthys. <laughs> right? Animal, chordate, Osteichthys, all birds, reptiles, amphibians, and mammals are technically part of Osteichthys, so Technically, cladistically, we are fish. But whether or not you want to call us fish is a very different question. Yeah, and this gets back into the term issue. Like, it's really mm -hmm. nice to have the cladistic list of Osiectes to Tetrapoda to you know Mammalia, because by looking at that list, you it already you know the rough evolutionary history of that animal. Yes, by having it listed out that way, which is the whole point. The terminology is the issue of. You know, do you introduce, you know, yourself as a very derived fish or <laughs> where do you draw the line on? Well, yes, we technically are descended from fish, but, you know, that's so far back that there's really, you know, there's there's no connections we can draw in modern day. You know, it's it's that issue of where do you draw the line on right. what you actually want to say we are. And it and it's 
it, it reveals this conflict between scientific terminology and regular everyday speech. Yes. And the real answer, my answer is, fish is not a scientific word. Mm-hmm. It would be ridiculous for us, because fish has a specific meaning, right? When you say the word fish, people generally know what you're talking about. Yes. To change the meaning of the word fish to fit the technical definition... To, you know, that so that the word fish also means elephants and eagles and snakes and humans mm-hmm. would ruin the word fit. Like, there'd be no point to the word anymore because it no longer has a useful meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, a similar conflict comes up when you talk about reptiles, right? Birds are technically reptiles yeah. because they evolved from reptiles and they have a lot in common with reptiles because of that evolutionary relationship. But when you say reptile in regular conversation... People don't think birds, yeah. right? People are pretty clear on turtles, crocs, snakes, and lizards. Even though that's not quite complete, the regular use of the word isn't the same as the official technical evolutionary definition. Yeah, our our habit and our want, because it's logical, even if not taking all the facts in, is when we're doing just normal conversation, we still want to classify things as the... Beasts of the air, beasts of the land, beasts of the sea, scaly beasts, feathered beasts. We still want to categorize. Yes, I know birds are technically dinosaurs and ergo technically reptiles. But when I say Mm -hmm. dinosaurs, I don't want you to show me a picture of a chicken. (laughs) Because that's not what I'm thinking of. I actually met a person who made that argument about birds and dinosaurs who said that we shouldn't insist on calling birds dinosaurs for the same as the humans fish thing, that people have an idea in their head when they say birds, and people have an idea in their head when they say dinosaurs, and trying to force the scientific definition is just going to be confusing. Yeah. Uh, I happen to strongly disagree with that. Yes. And I will I will explain why using the power of an anecdote. <laughs> uh, I was part of a teacher professional development day at the center that I used to work at, and as part of it, I did a presentation for teachers about dinosaurs. And just sort of, how do we understand dinosaurs? And what do we know about them? And what can we learn about them? And I started the presentation by passing out stacks of cards. And the cards had, it was like nine or ten cards, and they had pictures of different animals on them. A mammoth, T-Rex, Triceratops, a pterosaur, a mosasaur, a crocodile, a sparrow, or something like that. A bunch of different animals. And I said, organize these into dinosaurs and not dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And I had them work in groups, and I gave them like a minute, you know which are dinosaurs, which are not dinosaurs. And I did that activity with probably eight or nine different groups and got probably eight or nine different answers. Yeah. I disagree with the argument that people have a general consistent idea of what a dinosaur is. Yes. They don't. That like the, there's Every person you meet is likely to have a different idea in their head of what fits into this category of dinosaurs. I think if we're going to enforce a specific definition, we might as well go with the scientific one. Which is what that word started off as anyway. Yes. it's Because, I mean, you have a whole group of people that they will happily lump in saber-toothed cats and mammoths in with, even if they know those aren't technically dinosaurs, when they Mm -hmm. are thinking about them, they're all in one group. Yeah. You can see that if you just go to a cheap toy store and get the plastic (laughs) bag of animals of dinosaurs. And in there a lot of the time, there will be a saber-toothed cat and a mammoth and a caveman. Dimetrodon. And a... Exactly, a dimetrodon all lumped in there because really, for a lot of people, if you find it in the ground as bones, it's all one group of animals. Right, and it masks this notion that dinosaur reflects a real 
category yeah, of animals. That, that, right? It actually is a scientific term. Yep. I, I had a discussion with a person uh, at one point who argued that king crabs can be called dinosaurs because they've been around for a long time. And I'm like, that is a metaphorical definition. <laughs> but the word is very specific. Yes, exactly. It's, you know, the whole, uh, the whole living fossil issue. The other thing that this makes me think of, and I'm sure we'll get to an episode about scientific terminology and its importances mm-hmm. and all that stuff, but it goes, the, you know, the real main thing uh, that I always think of when people say that, well, it's not really important that we use the correct, is the whole theory terminology, yeah, which has actually been actively used against scientific advancement to be able to say it's just a theory, because in right. layman's terms, when you're just doing normal conversation, a theory is just an idea. Just uh, mm-hmm. yeah, something you thought up when you were tired one day, uh, when yes. you were sitting on the toilet. <laughs> well, it's like in all the, the TV shows, like, I have a theory about this alien creature. Exactly. Whilst in any science class, the first thing you learn is that you have a hypothesis that you test, and after mm-hmm. testing multiple hypotheses, you come up with a theory of thought that has been supported by a lot of research. It's still called a theory because it could still change. We could still ad- adapt that theory because we discover something new. Yep. But it is a theory. Uh, it's like when you take a class in college, like music theory. Mm-hmm. Or um, uh, my girlfriend, who is an artist, has studied color theory. Yes. It's not the theory that color exists. Yes. So we're it's pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> pretty sure. It, although that's that's a different... I, I that's, know that's of at least philosophy. two of them. Um, <laughs> I'm good with... Um, it's a... It's a and the exploration of a topic. Yes, but yeah, there's there's a bit of conflict uh, at times between technical terminology and the way we just generally use words. Yeah, well, and it's it's the same. We did the um the mini so mini episode about the new class potential classification for the dinosaur family tree. Yep, and that was a great example of there was so much reaction to that. Mm-hmm. You know, purely purely because we're you know slight words were going to be changed as to who exactly they were but it was mostly just you were changing the terminology of the groupings and shifting who was actually on which branch uh and you get a lot that's a big change yeah we're gonna have to change the way we think about certain ones but people are used to they're comfortable with the old terms and you get that with anybody if you suddenly come in and go hey really you know we should start calling this group of mammals primates you're gonna have a lot of people that react to that some of them are gonna go no i study those animals those uh i don't think of them as primates <laughs> and then you're gonna have a lot of people who go i don't want those also to be primates because that means then i'm yeah. kind of that animal and you so it's there's always resistance whenever you want to change stuff like that yeah scientific terminology is interesting because on the one hand if it works it should never change yes on the other hand if you discover something has is different, your terminology should change immediately. Yes. Right? We've discovered birds are part of reptiles. Okay, click. Reptilia now includes birds. Yep. But regular language doesn't work in either of those ways. Yeah. Words can't change immediately, and they also can't stay the same forever. Yes. So you get this conflict. More on that in an episode about scientific terminology, I'm sure. Yeah, where we talk even more about words. <laughs> We're using lots of words. Yes. So all this talk about clades and the order of, of the evolution of, of features and advanced features and ancestral features, what, where do we get all this, right? We, we're talking a lot of terminology and, and philosophy and stuff like that. What do we get out of this? What does this help us do? 
Well, the biggest thing that it helps us do, the most direct thing, is that it's a way for us to understand the processes and patterns of evolution. Yeah, to visualize it. Yes, and when we understand that groups of organisms are related through common ancestry and that this feature was around since the beginning and this feature is something new, we can put this together into that big family tree, of which I'll put plenty of uh, images in the blog post, and sort of point and say, all right, this is when this feature showed up, this is when this feature showed up, like the two news articles I mentioned before Mm -hmm. about figuring out using a handful of different species and an understanding of which traits have been around for for which amount of time and being able to say, okay, this is when this feature showed up. This is a feature that showed up multiple times, right? Legless, you know, the loss of limbs in in lizards has happened multiple times. The, The whales that I talked about, at least three different lineages, three different families, three different clades of whales evolved large size Mm -hmm. starting around that three or four million years ago time so and and the bees one was a phenomenal example because we didn't even use fossils in that one yeah it was just based on comparing traits and understanding the processes of evolution in that group of of animals yeah this also ties into a subject that will I, i think you mentioned this last episode the idea of molecular clocks yes Uh, So a molecular clock is basically when you don't have the fossil record to determine when a feature showed up. And really, the fossil record is never 100% on on exactly when a feature showed up. You can look at genetics and say, all right, this, uh, you know, we're, we're comparing these two species and they have this much difference in their genes and we have a we can study genetic change to get an idea of how quickly new genetic changes are going to show up and then estimate how long would it have taken for these two species for this particular feature to have changed this much from what it was in the ancestor mm-hmm. and that's when you get estimates for when certain things happened yeah the estimates for the origin of a group, right? The first mammals, molecular clock estimates for the first mammals will give you a certain time. Um, the, the same thing with the bees. Yeah, if we have this trait now, how long should it have taken for it to show up? If we look this far back, we should be seeing the origin of it. Yes. And this it's important in this case to keep in mind the difference between ancestral and derived features. Mm-hmm. Because if you compare, you know, chimps and humans... And you say, all right, well, we want to pick some genes that have, or some sections of our genetics where some things are the same. And if it's the same, we, you know, it's ancestral. Mm -hmm. At least there's a very good chance it's ancestral because we both inherited it. The different parts are what's interesting. You count up the differences and figure out how long did that take. Uh, and those estimates will change, right? The the estimate for the ancest- common ancestor of humans and chimps has bounced around five, six, seven million years ago Mm -hmm. uh, based on what particular method you're using. The other one that comes up, and this is probably my favorite example of how we can use cladistics and phylogeny, is to make predictions about the features of extinct organisms Mm -hmm. using a process called phyletic bracketing. Yes. Uh, This is why we think, for example, that saber-toothed cats had fur. Yes. As far as I know, we've never found a saber-toothed cat with fur. Yes. There has never been a fossil. There's no frozen saber-toothed cats. We don't have direct evidence that there was fur on a saber-toothed cat. Like, just by looking at the fossil, there's no real reason we should assume. Yes. 
But we know from their features and from the fossil record that they fit into the group Felidae, cats. Yep. And that cats fit into the group mammals, which means that the ancestors of saber-toothed cats and all of their cousins, all of their relatives, are covered in fur. Are fuzzy. They're fuzzy. So, yeah, I mean, there's no reason to think they would have changed. So we say, yeah, their entire lineage is furry. They were probably furry, too. Mm-hmm. This is also why, when you ask most paleontologists today, they will tell you that T-Rex was almost certainly feathered. Yep. For the same reason. Its ancestors had feathers. All of its cousins had feathers. In fact, its cousins and second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth cousins all had feathers. Yep. So again, it had a lo- it came from a long ancestry of feathered dinosaurs. So unless we have a really good reason to think that it would have, some, for some reason, lost all of its feathers, yeah, probably a feathered animal. And that's that's the case with lots of paleontologies. If the animals it's related to and descended from and the modern-day relatives all have a feature, unless we see something that should point to otherwise, it's a pretty good indicator that this one likely shared it. Yep. Uh, this is also used in things like, you know, a lot of medical research will, will look at... Uh, phylogenetic patterns to determine the origins of disease Mm -hmm. or to look at, you know, who's more susceptible to certain diseases. What group of humanity is going to have this trait versus this trait based on when that trait showed up. Um, A lot of that sort of micro scale changes in genetic structure and in features. Yeah. It's neat because you can, you can also use this uh, for behavioral aspects of an animal yeah which is really cool uh and that's always one of my favorite things is when you look at like the similarities between crocodilians and birds they're both very vocal they both are very heavy parental care and that leads to most likely dinosaurs were too yeah that's an archosaur trait then you had noisy dinosaurs taking care of their babies (laughs) yeah this notion that most reptiles aren't noisy Mm mm-hmm but crocs and birds both are, which is a good indication that the first archosaurs were. Mm-hmm. Thus, perhaps all archosaurs which is could awesome. have inherited that trait. Which uh, No, the, the idea that dinosaurs were flashy and colorful and social and noisy, uh, some of which we have direct evidence for, mm-hmm. and much of the rest for which the fact that crocs are most of those things <laughs> yeah. too. Yeah, there's a lot. And that's, you know, we, we always talk about that. And we talked about it earlier in this episode with your T-Rex piece. Mm-hmm. You said scientists typically compare dinosaurs to crocs and birds. Yeah. Because those are the two other parts that we can look at of their family tree. Yes, exactly. Uh, it's like when the doctor says, do you have a history of heart disease Yeah. in your family? Yeah, we look at dinosaurs and we say, all right, do they have a history of this behavior in their family? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's it's cool. Uh, I especially like this one because it means all the documentaries with dinosaurs making noises uh, all the time is mm-hmm. less silly just to sound cool and now could actually be much <laughs> more factual. <laughs> it's same thing as when we talk about you know animals in movies. It's like, why are you growling right now? There's no reason for you to growl. It's the same thing. <laughs> yeah. But now, hey, yeah, they actually may have been bellowing and roaring and making noises yeah. at each other all the time. I like to imagine... Um, just to completely counter, you know, common perceptions of certain uh, dinosaurs and such. Mm-hmm. I love to the idea of a tiny velociraptor that's just super obnoxious. Oh, yeah, right? Like that bird outside your window. Yeah, just little micro-raptors the sitting there. Just 
constant noise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would be so... Well, well, one of the recent dinosaur documentaries did that. Um, it was either Dinosaur Revolution or Planet Dinosaur. I don't remember which one, but it had... I don't think it was Velociraptor. I think it was a different dinosaur that they were all colorful and they gathered in this big group and just squawked and squeaked constantly. Mm-hmm. And it was like uh, when you see the documentaries that go to colonies of penguins. Yeah, exactly. Just constant noise. Because it's a, it's a theme Almost all birds are yep. super noisy with each other, <laughs> especially when they're making eggs. Now, uh, as we've discussed over the course of this episode, there's still a lot of discussion and there's still a lot of disagreement in this field, in, yeah. in, the, in, the, in our perception of, of phylogenetic relationships. And there are a lot of reasons why. Um, we'll talk about some of those. The biggest reason that there's disagreement, because, you know, the, the big question is, of course, if living things are really related mm-hmm. in a f- big family tree, as we understand them to be, why don't we know what the big family tree is? Yes. Why are we arguing about it? Like, shouldn't there just be one outcome? Yes. And the answer is, yeah, there is one outcome, but we don't know it yet. Yes. We know most of it. The biggest reason that there's still debate, and the same reason there's debate in just about anything in science, is because we don't have all the information. Exactly. Most living animals have not been fully assessed phylogenetically. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't fully know the history of all their traits. Um, we know the major parts, yeah. but there's a lot of details we don't know. And then, of course, we're trying to pull from the fossil record. You know, if you're looking at animals like turtles, turtles are pretty clearly reptiles. But in order to figure out who they're related to, you want to look for similar features to test. And they're so weird. They're so derived mm-hmm. compared to other reptiles that they have so many derived features that it's really hard to compare. So what you need is an early turtle that hadn't changed quite as much, and that is hidden somewhere in the patchy fossil record, and we don't have very much of that. You can only compare traits if those traits fossilize. Yes. And then you have to find them. Yeah, that's one big reason, right? We don't have all the information. Yeah. There's also the question that traits can be confusing. Mm -hmm. So... All the examples of derived and ancestral traits that we talked about before are simple, but they're not always simple. No. You know, uh, uh, something like you, you look at, I, I've heard people uh, ask, are ostriches, for example, closer to dinosaurs because they can't fly? Yeah, exactly. Because they look like a lot of dinosaur species. They seem to move. Yep. Is that an ancestral body shape that they directly got from their non-flying dino ancestors? Or did they evolve from small flying birds into something superficially similar to the dinosaurs that came before? We understand today that, yeah, no, birds started off small and flying Mm -hmm. and ostriches got weird again. But trying to figure out this, you know, comparing uh, convergence versus ancestry is oftentimes very hard. Uh, Like we mentioned before. If you were just given a Struthiomimus skeleton, an ostrich skeleton, a, you know... Cast, cast, not cassowary, but um, a secretary bird, and mm-hmm. then a small songbird. You would very logically draw the conclusions like, oh, ostrich, you know, Struthiomimid dinosaurs grew feathers. Those got smaller and started learning oh. how to fly, and then those turned into little tiny songbirds. That makes complete sense <laughs> until you right. then someone goes, what about the Archaeopteryx fossil? Once it's discovered, and you go, oh, well, that messes everything up. Now it's weird. Now you have to reorganize. So it's if you don't have all the answers, you can very easily draw a completely reasonable answer that's not actually correct. 
Yup. And that, you know, the fact that traits can sometimes look similar without actually being related mm-hmm. can be confusing. And we've talked about that a whole bunch. Convergent evolution. Yep. Or like before when we said with the whales, just because whales are giant doesn't mean they all came from the same ancestor. Mm-hmm. That feature evolved multiple times. Yeah. You know, flight evolved multiple times. Once again, when you have the right tool for the job, other people are going to figure out to use it. Doesn't mean you all got it from the same place. Yes. And, you know, the examples that we're using are a bit, not not super obvious, but, you know, it's pretty clear that birds and bats are very different. Mm -hmm. But most studies that look at features and are trying to compare features evolutionarily are often looking at really specific features, very small scale uh, things, in a lot of cases, genetic features, where it's not as obvious, Mm -hmm. which leads to one of the other big issues... You know, you would think that the ideal way to do this is just to look at all of the features of an animal, mm-hmm. all of the features of all animals, plug them into your computer and say, all right, figure it out. Yeah. And the problem with that is, first of all, you need to, have, you have to identify, you have to tell the computer, these features are similar because, uh, you know, you sometimes you have to guide the computer and say, don't get confused by this. Yes. And keep this in mind. And this is you know, what we're comparing to. But the other thing is you can't do that because a computer can't do that. <laughs> like, yeah. we're not... That's You can't just put 5 million data points into the computer and expect it to work properly. You can't just throw it all at the wall and see if it works. The software has to work in particular ways and it can only handle so much. Yeah, Really giant phylogen- phylogenetic trees are very difficult to do. It's it's uh, that whole issue. And it, it's... The same issue that we were just saying. If you have a whole bunch of animals and they all have similarities, but only some of those similarities are due to relationship, there's no reason a computer is not going to get stumped by that also. It happens all the time. All you have to do is read the same bear studies that we did back in statistics class whenever the pandas (laughs) added in. It confuses everything because the pandas are super weird, but similar enough. So it just kind of muddies the water when you're trying to look at all the other bears. It's the same thing. Uh, And when you look at different features, you will sometimes get different answers. Mm -hmm. There is a classic conflict in paleontology between physical features and genetic features. Yes. Molecules versus morphology, where genetics aren't always evolving following the same patterns that the physical features, the phenotypes, Mm -hmm. are following. So a lot of times you're Genetic phylogeny will give you a slightly different answer than you're looking at bones or something. Yeah. Will has a favorite example of that that we discussed way back in episode two. Absolutely. So for any of you that (laughs) need the update or or weren't there then, between two crocodilians, the false and true gharial, there is a ongoing dispute between the osteological, the, the the morphology, physical description of the animal and the molecular and genetic. And basically yep. every time, if you look at the bones, it says pretty distinctly that the false gharial, which is Temistema, is mm-hmm. a off-branch of crocodiles. It's it's with them, but it's off to the side. It's definitely the weirdest of all of right. the... It's the, the outer cousin of the crocodile yes. family lineage. And the... Indian gharial is off on its own group. It's mm-hmm. weird compared to all crocodilians. And looking yes. at the skulls, yeah, it looks that way. And when they've done measurements of the skulls and the skeleton, it really does seem that way. 
when they look at the genetics, every single time they look at those genetics, <laughs> it says, no, those two should be together. The false and true gharial should actually be grouped together, and they're outside of crocodiles, but right next to it. So it brings the gharial a lot closer into crocodiles and the mm -hmm. false gharial further away from them. And it's almost 100% yep. for each one on that they always disagree. How much yep. they disagree with each other's changes, but they almost always are on the two different sides. And it's not clear why. <laughs> yeah. Different data will sometimes give you different shaped trees. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of dispute over basically trying to hone the data. And then the final point that I, that I want to make, the probably the biggest conflict that comes up the most often is, and we touched on this before, not how to interpret the trees, but how to name things. Yes. Taxonomy, right? Way back in the beginning, taxonomy is naming things, mm -hmm. classifying things. Taxonomists argue constantly. This is why I am not one of them. <laughs> it just changes and it too comes much. up this idea of, okay, we understand the relationships. What naming best reflects the relationships? Mm -hmm. Over here, we have these four species, should we call them all part of the same group or should we name them two different groups? I remember reading a dispute. This was, it was hilarious because there was two authors writing papers and in the papers they kept making snike, snikey, uh, <laughs> snide comments back and forth at each other because they disagreed about, um, in the U.S. there is a genus of snakes, mm. Pantherophus, which yep. is rat snakes, corn snakes, this has even come up at the aquarium because we have corn snakes. <laughs> and yep. the same thing happens when it'll come up and they're like, well, technically it's been chained. And you can hear it in their voice. They're like, technically. <laughs> yeah. One of these authors wanted to basically just say all of this group is one genus, Pantherophus. The other one wanted to split it into smaller groups of species. Mm -hmm. This group, these species are Pantherophus. These species are, I think, Mintonia. These species are Scotophus. Um, this happened recently with giraffes. Yeah, there was a study that came out. Uh, giraffes today are typically classified as one species. There was a new study that looked at genetic diversity and said, well, they are, they seem really separate. So instead of being four subspecies, we should call them four different species. Yes. And this is how do we name things? How do we group things? Yeah. How different um, does it have to be to be a species? How different does it have to be to be a genus, a family, an order? Yep. How much difference do you need to be bumped up to that next division? Yes. And this goes back to the problem that these names are arbitrary. Yes. We're making up these... You know, we choose where the names go on the categories. The relationships are real, but we choose the names. This is, you'll hear this called the classic dispute between lumpers and splitters. Yep. Lumpers want there to be lots of, you know, include lots of things under one name. Splitters want to split up multiple names. And the dispute, you know, it sounds like a, a semantic dispute, and it is, but the logic here is... If you're grouping too many things under one name, you're going to, you know, it affects how we think about things and it affects how we make our studies. So if there's too many things under one name, it makes it seem like there's less diversity than you really should be looking for. And the opposite in the other direction. Yeah. And it also suggests that there's less difference. Yes. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's a semantic argument, but there are actual implications yeah. in terms of how we think about the, the 
clades and how we think about relationships between animals. Well, then on the splitter side, you risk you run the risk of splitting hairs to where it's like, all right, yes, there's yes. a technical difference, but that technical difference falls within one thousandth of a percent of the genetic structure. So I don't, you know, yes. <laughs> to where it's like... <laughs> and now it's a distraction, right? Now you're overcomplicated. Yes. And so that was a question asked when I started grad school. <laughs> Is... Are you a lump or a splitter? <laughs> and I had to learn what they meant so that I could figure out which one I was. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as an as always, the the reality is somewhere in between. Yes, uh, there is a there's no perfect way to do it because it's opinion based. You know, in some cases, one might be more right than the other. This dispute is at the heart of what happened to Brontosaurus, mm-hmm. right? Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus were originally named as separate genera, two species and under each with their own genus. And then later, somebody said, well, they're actually pretty similar, so they go two species under the same genus, Apatosaurus. And then recently, there was a new study that said, hey, there is actually more diversity than we realize, so maybe they should be two different, and it's still the technical... It hasn't been fully accepted yet, so technically still, I don't I don't know how insistent they were that we bring back the name Brontosaurus. Uh, but people, you know, that comes up a lot. Uh, my other fun example, final example of a... A, a side effect of lumping versus splitting mm. is this is one of the reasons why the velociraptors in Jurassic Park are wrong. <laughs> yes. Velociraptor is a genus, Velociraptor mongoliensis. The species is a small dinosaur, you know, two, three feet tall from Mongolia. Deinonychus antiropus is a larger dinosaur, very similar, dromaeosaur, from North America, more like four or five feet tall. Different species, different genus. But in the 80s, a man named Greg Paul wrote a book where he he illustrated all sorts of different dinosaurs. And in his opinion, Velociraptor and Deinonychus were similar enough that he thought they should be two species under the same genus. Mm -hmm. And he called them Velociraptor mongoliensis for the small Asian one and Velociraptor antiropus for the large North American one. Yes. This was not accepted, right? Paleontologists said, eh, no, we want to keep it the other way. And they generally agreed. But no. Yeah. We're not going to do that. However... That book was one of the books that Michael Crichton cited as inspiration for writing Jurassic Park, which explains why the oversized Velociraptor in his book and movie is not only shaped more Deinonychus-like, but they also are digging it up in Montana. Yep. In the in the movie in the beginning for that early scene in the movie, they're digging up quote Velociraptor in Montana, which is where you find Deinonychus. Yep. <laughs> so it would it you know that's. That started with a person who had a, who wanted to lump these two species in a way that other paleontologists ended up not agreeing with. Names naturally change as situations change, as new discoveries are made. But when you go back and read that older material, they were still using the old name. You know, we don't go back and update it, you know, white out and write in. (laughs) It's, you have to take it within the context of when it was. And that doesn't always happen. Yep. So, there you go. Now, when Will and I talk about relationships, when we talk about clades, when we talk about derived and ancestral features, hopefully there's a little bit more context for what we mean by those things. Um, I understand that talking about phylogenetic trees in audio is hard, uh, and I tried not to dwell too much on the specifics of the structures of the trees, but in the blog post, we'll have plenty of images and links to more information. Yes, it is a very visual thing. There are also a few websites... Where you, that are interactive 
trees of life mm-hmm. that are super cool, and I will link to some of those as well. Absolutely. It's it's a really interesting subject. It's a very dense one because there's lots of minutia, lots yep. and lots of little specifics and everything like that. Uh, one of my biggest dreams for the future is once we sequence the DNA of more and more mm-hmm. animals because that will give us a very clear you know, in a relationship with the genetics. Uh, you would certainly hope so. I hope so. Um, <laughs> but it is. It's a very complex, very detailed, and all, ever-changing. Uh, this is why you'll hear things all the time. Like, I was told just this past week that, oh, but did you know there's actually six species of giraffe? And that happens all the <laughs> yeah. time. Once again, we always have to take all this stuff in the mindset of one study does not a rule make. Yes. But with the naming stuff, it's really hard because if you get down to the nitty gritty, there's a lot of animals that if you go and say, all right, but what's their scientific name? You might not have one clear answer because it might be in the process of being debated. And depending on who you ask and what sources you look at, you won't, you won't find the right answer. The famous shark Megalodon is a great example of that because you see it as C Megalodon, but that C actually can be two different Yes, <laughs> two it's different genera. Either Cacaracles or uh, Cacaridon. So it's either with great white or other megatooth sharks. And it gets put down as C. megalodon all the time. But depending on which paper you read, half of them just about will say one, half of them will say the other. Yeah. Um, this also happens with uh, the giant lizard Megalania. Yes. Megalania was its genus name originally, but it's not ca- considered part of that genus anymore. Now it's just Varanus. Uh, it was Megalania priscus. Now it's Varanus priscus or Prisca. Uh, so we still call it Megalania, but that is now a now that's a nickname. Yes, exactly. <laughs> not a scientific name. Exactly. It's it's uh, you know same thing as calling just saying a saber toothed cat when really there's a whole bunch of those. It's but yep. it's it's really interesting. The names are a tricky thing because it's how we communicate. And just yep. if you suddenly change and just start using the new term without commun- like explaining what you're doing, it'd be the same thing as me going, well, I'm going to go get on my couch now, but I've decided to call my car a couch, uh, and I yes. just not told anyone. <laughs> now, we should be clear, and I, I, I do want to make this point because I realize that we might be giving a, an impression. Um, most of the naming disputes happen at a very small level. Yes. Species, genera, subspecies. I had a conversation with somebody online once who I corrected them uh, in in saying, or it came up in conversation. I don't know if I corrected them directly, um, but I was pointing out that pterosaurs aren't dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. And this person said, don't get too caught up in those names because they change all the time. Yes. Which is a fair point, but at that scale, they don't usually. The definition of dinosaur has not really changed very much in the in, in the century and a half since it was created and in fact pterosaurs have never been considered dinosaurs yeah not once since since the the, the word was introduced were pterosaurs ever considered dinosaurs scientifically speaking yeah we're using larger examples and even still even with those two those seem like really big you know oversights or faux pas in naming but it's still Mm -hmm. just a single species each like that's one fossil species one being a shark who we mostly only have teeth of so yep we are having to purely figure out who it's related to just by looking at the shape of the teeth. So it's that's those are still very small instances of, you know, oh, it's actually more like this than that. It's not typically that you're going to be like, hey, did you know cats are actually more closely related to baboons? That's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, we got the big scale stuff yeah. figured out. It's those for the most little part. things of where's this species yep. actually fit. 
and it, and with naming is the big thing, right? The names of big groups typically aren't going to change as much, whereas with small levels like mm-hmm. species, we're arguing all the time. And what like what that guy said, it can get annoying, especially if you're not part of the community or research to be able to keep you know your finger on the pulse of how things are changing. But it can be weird, and it can be kind of off-putting and annoying when you check back in a month after hearing about something and it's now called something different. If you missed mm-hmm. why that change happened, it's now sounds like they're talking about a different animal. Yes. And that's why we pay uh, that's why we put a lot of stake on the data, the actual groups mm-hmm. and relationships. Less dramatic information, uh, less dramatic importance on what exactly we name those groups. Yes. Cuz those things are the name is something just there for our comfort. That doesn't yes. tell the name does not That's tell you language. whether it was a tree climber or a predator or aquatic or when it was around or who it's related to. The name lets us talk about it. So I don't have to go yep. the big clawed one that was like two feet tall and ran around and lived around this time. So I don't have to describe it every time. <laughs> it's the whole point for names is just so I can say a word and you know what I'm thinking of. Well, there you go. Taxonomy, the classification, naming of, of organisms, and phylogeny, the actual tree of life, and an introduction to some of the ways that we talk about them. Some of the words we use, the sort of the mindset that we're in when we talk about these things. I hope people learn stuff. Like I said, there will be more uh, links and images on the blog if you have more questions, if you have more requests, if you have more suggestions. Facebook, Twitter, iTunes for reviews, email us at commondescentpodcast at gmail.com. And hey, did I mention we also have a Patreon now, the Common Descent Podcast on Patreon. If you feel like giving us a whole little bit extra, go ahead and check that out. As always, we will be back in a fortnight, Mm -hmm. two weeks till the next episode. It will be episode 11. And that's it. We will see you guys next time. Yeah. Once again, thanks, as always, for listening. Thanks that's, very much. That's ba- that's that's all we wrote about this subject. And that is the Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. For more from us, you can follow us on the Common Descent Podcast Twitter account, Facebook page, or on our WordPress blog where we post additional cool stuff for each episode. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome. You can find this and other video game remix music at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope to see you next time.